Be Thou My Vision. What a song. I imagine that as the Apostle Peter and the disciples were being arrested and then beaten and then released, they had God as their vision. Acts 5.40, which Craig read for us earlier, says, when the Jewish leaders had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That response, I think, can be puzzling to a lot of us, and certainly at various times in our lives, because unfortunately, oftentimes in temptation, suffering can be seen by us as occasions not for rejoicing, but instead for complaint, occasions for despair even. But Peter and the disciples, they saw their sufferings for Jesus Christ as opportunities to live for the glory of Christ. And as we continue our series through the book of 1 Peter, we see how our sufferings as well are also opportunities to live for the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And we are in chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Also can be found in your app if you're using that. And as you turn there, I'll give you, give you a little bit of background. The apostle Peter was writing to suffering Christians who were suffering, not just generally, but suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes into that background, calling them, encouraging them to be faithful to Jesus lifting up their hearts, lifting up their minds in their, and their eyes to Christ and calling them in terms of their actions to live for Him all the way until the end. Let's stand together as we read our passage together. And what we've been talking about over the last couple chapters, um, probably for the last six months or so, he really is summarized in this passage today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Please be seated. Our main point today is that our sufferings, our sufferings 
for Jesus are opportunities for, number one, for us to rejoice in the glory of Christ, number two, to boast in the name of Christ, and then number three, to entrust ourselves to Christ. Our sufferings for Jesus are opportunities to rejoice in the glory of Christ, boast in the name of Christ, and entrust ourselves to Christ. Let's jump into point number one. Our sufferings for Christ are an opportunity to rejoice in the glory of Jesus Christ. Look there at verses 12 and 13. I'll read that again. He begins saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Clearly, suffering is going to come. We see that in our passage here as he holds out these two uh, alternative responses to the reality of suffering. Don't be surprised, but instead rejoice. Don't be surprised, but instead rejoice. This topic of suffering, he addressed right from the start. If you look at verse, uh, flip over to chapter 1, and we see there in verse 6. Go ahead and turn there. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. They are already rejoicing. They're already rejoicing. In this you rejoice, that is, the salvation that is to be revealed. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then he states the purpose for these trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see there already in chapter 1, right from the beginning, he is leaning forward to the end, encouraging Christians as they live now, looking forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the suffering, this fiery trials has this purifying purpose in God's eyes. It has a purifying purpose in God's eyes. It's a refining process as if one refines gold through the fire. And so suffering refines our faith. We're going to come back to this, but testing us to see just how much we love Him. Helping us even to love Him over all things. And so be ready for the revelation of Christ. You could think of it in in a way like this where a bride who beautifies herself, rightly so, on her wedding day, she beautifies herself in order to be ready for that moment. And so Christ himself, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, is readying the, the bride, the church, readying her so that the church would meet the bridegroom that is Christ making her righteous and holy and beautiful to meet the righteous one himself. And part of the way that he does this, though it can be difficult, is through suffering. Though experiencing persecution is difficult, we know that Christ warned his followers, alerted his followers that just as they persecuted me, just as they persecuted him, that is the Christ, so they will persecute his followers, John 15, 18 to 25. And so therefore, because he warns us, Peter here says, well, let's do this. When trials come, do not be surprised, but instead, we see there in verse 12, rejoice 
as you share in Christ's sufferings. What he means there is just the sufferings that come from following Jesus Christ. I'll be honest though, maybe you're like me, we still find suffering to be a bit of a surprise. And then along with that, we are discouraged. Along with that, perhaps we wrestle with despair, whether we suffer for Jesus or just suffer in general. So for example, we all know that we will die, that we will return to dust. But yet even when we receive such a horrible diagnosis, surprise and despair seems to follow, doesn't it? With such deep and despiding, dis uh, abiding despair, maybe you know in that moment what it's like to be tempted to give up. Or when you suffer for Christ's sake, maybe you've been tempted, right, to be quiet so that you can gain the world's approval. And so you no longer stand for Jesus because you're too afraid of what man can do to you. Afraid of rejection, afraid of the mockery, afraid of physical persecution. And then you think about not only how that can be discouraging, well, the fact that we are surprised as we reflect on this passage about ourselves, even though we can be surprised and even though we are tempted to be quiet, like those in and of itself can be discouraging as we look at our faith and wonder just how strong it is. So when we look at verse 12, we may wonder, well, how in the world is my surprise and discouragement supposed to turn into rejoicing? Because when we might look at our lives and the temptations that we go through, we might realize that actually our surprise and discouragement come up so frequently that we wonder if we rejoice at all even though we call ourselves Christian. Well, as you answer that question, how in the world can our surprise and discouragement turn into rejoicing? I think the answer starts off by recognizing that you are Christian, though you sin, nevertheless God's beloved. That's what he says there in verse 12. Beloved. Peter here starts off by recognizing that if you are a Christian, you are truly beloved of God. That's what Christians are called there in verse 12, beloved of God. That's reason to rejoice. Reason to rejoice. We fight fear and the rejection of man by recognizing that the God of the universe has already reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ, and he has already made us part of his family, children of God adopted by him where we know his love now, and we will know it to the full then. I hope you guys were so mindful of what Terry was talking about as he you know, set up the scripture reading, and then as he prayed, super significant truths there. He was reminding us of what it means to be saved by God, reconciled to God, and now we have the opportunity to go out with a ministry of reconciliation. And sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we fear. Sometimes we are surprised, discouraged, and despair. But knowing God's love, that you are beloved of God, is a reason to rejoice. So no matter where you are, friends, in your own struggle, with the fear of man, your own struggle uh, to evangelize others that God himself has placed you around. Well, friends, Peter wants to help. And our pastor calls us to know God's love more fully and so therefore to rejoice. 
Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's earthly sufferings. Here's another reason to rejoice. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Similar to 1.6, he's leaning into the future, encouraging us now. He does the same thing here in verse 13. But rejoice currently insofar as we share currently in Christ's sufferings. That, leaning into the future, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Another reason to rejoice, God desires to bless you in the end. Right? You already are blessed. You're God's beloved. Now, look at the future, guys. In the midst of your sufferings, God desires to bless you in the end. Rejoicing now leads to rejoicing in the end. Rejoice now. That, he says, that the intended result is that you would rejoice then. I think that this verse and the truths here are, are meant to encourage you, Christian, encourage you in the fact that standing for the gospel, which is the occasion that brought about the suffering, is evidence, friend. It's evidence that God is working in you as he was working in them. So think about it this way. The fact that one actually shares in Christ's sufferings currently, that is sharing the sufferings that come from following Jesus, it means, friend, that you're still running the race. So you might be tempted to look inwardly and think, man, why is all this suffering happening? I'm so discouraged. He actually says, look, if you are suffering, you're still in the game. You're still running the race. You're still in the fight. You are still standing, and you know that because people are insulting you. Peter encourages all to stand all the more. I take great comfort in Peter's encouragement. Here is a guy who, friends, gave in to the fear of man once again. We've talked about this in the past. He gave in to the fear of man at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and shrunk back from declaring his allegiance to the king. This is what he said in Matthew 26. He said to a little gal who asked him if he was with Christ, he said, I do not know the man. And you think, how does Peter go from that to what we read in Acts chapter 5? How does he go from denying Jesus Christ to saying, we will suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We must obey God rather than man. And then here he is again in 1 Peter being bold, encouraging the church to be bold. He is a leader in the early church. In the book of Acts, if you go and read, you see so clearly that he stands for the gospel. How does he go to failure to full throttle? It's actually by turning to Jesus in his failure isn't it? Think about the end of the book of John. Christ draws near to a despairing Peter. He knows that he has rejected and denied his Savior. But Jesus, nevertheless, reinstates him into the ministry. Do you love me? He asks him. And Peter says, of course, I love you. He certainly had sin, but he says, yes, I do love you. And Jesus reinstates him encouraging him even though he had failed Jesus Christ. And that, friends, would not be the last time. If you look in Galatians chapter 1, he's fearing man again. He's struggling again. So if you are here today, maybe you are tempted to say like Peter did when your friends ask you about Jesus and this whole dying on the cross for your sin stuff and the whole resurrection stuff, 
and all about the morality that comes from living and following after Jesus, if you're here today and you, maybe you've been tempted to say, I do not know the man. Or maybe you live as if you do not know the man. This is a reminder here that Jesus calls us to walk as Peter did and to turn to Jesus Christ. To turn and to repent of your sins and then to continue to stand. And then be encouraged. It's interesting, right? That it's not perfection that indicates that you are a Christian. So I know some of us who might come from, let's say, backgrounds where morality is championed. A morality is championed. In general, we would say that this, this is America. In general, we would say that this is Asian culture as well. Confucianism lifts up some idea of morality. No, friends, if you are tempted to heap guilt on yourself for sinning, it is not perfection that identifies you as a Christian. It is repentance that identifies you as a Christian. Think about church discipline, right? We don't discipline for sin. Otherwise, we would all be disciplined. There would be nobody in the church. Church discipline is for those who do not repent of their sins. This is a wonderful invitation, an encouragement to, for us as Jesus calls us to turn back to him, knowing that he so loves us and desires to lift us up, even we who have rejected him at one time. Perfection is impossible. You want to see a Christian? Look for one who repents of their sin. Repentance evidences, doesn't it? Repentance evidences that you have the Spirit of God. Because the Bible says those who don't care about their sin don't have the Spirit of God. So why in the world would they repent? But the ones who have, sinners who have the Spirit of God, ah, those are the folks who repent. God knows your heart. He knows that you struggle sometimes. That is why, actually, he sets about refining your faith. So if you are discouraged today, if you know what that's like to heap ungodly guilt upon yourself, Jesus here calls you to continue standing. Turn from your sin and continue standing just as Peter did, rejoicing in God's grace and mercy and in his nurturing care and his sanctifying grace. And know that, again, right here, rejoicing now, which is standing and embracing God's plan for you now, being a faithful soldier now, leads to rejoicing later, all by God's promise. Rejoice in the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That is in the end time salvation. He talk, Peter talked about it a lot in this passage as he's leaning forward. He's wanting us to lean forward as we endure present day realities. In 1.4, he talks about how salvation is ready to be revealed. And he says, in this you rejoice. In 1.7, he calls us to, uh, he, he's looking, having us look forward to this day when our faith arises to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At 1.9, he encourages suffering Christians regarding the faith. He talks about the outcome of your faith. Keep on going. What does it result in? The salvation of your souls. 1.13, we await this grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is another promise. Those who share in the sufferings of Christ share in his glories, right? He intends to bless us in the future. That is why rejoicing now means rejoicing later. God has promised to us that the one who endures till the end will be saved. Another reason, reason number three, 
While our passage calls us to cast our eyes forward, Peter also wants us to know he returns back to the fact that we are blessed now. So it's like he goes, reason number one, we are beloved, presently. Reason number two for why we ought to rejoice is God's going to bless us then. He has promised. And then he returns to the fact that we are blessed now. You look there at verse 14. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Right? If you're insulted for the name of God, again, we might, be, we might be tempted to think that we are nothing but cursed. Our family has rejected us. Our friends have rejected us. Maybe we are in the process of losing our jobs because we stand for Jesus Christ. But he goes back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the reason is the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, those who stand for Jesus now in the midst of suffering, you are evidencing your allegiances. It's evidence that you are a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. And you gotta ask yourself, right, if God has placed you around friends and family who are not Christian, and you are never insulted for Jesus Christ, you gotta wonder if you're speaking for Jesus Christ. Here he says, if you are insulted, no friends, you are blessed. This doesn't mean that we ought to go out and seek insults, right? Uh, we are still to be wise. We are still to be winsome. But the, the, basically, he's saying, look, if you're standing for Jesus, you are going to be insulted. And that fact means, evidences that the Spirit of God is working in you. It's an indicator that you indeed are a lover of God and that something has gone on in your hearts and changed you. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ has arrested you, gotten hold of you, given you a new heart all by the grace of God, and He currently is shaping who you are, shaping what you live for, strengthening you in your time of need, sustaining you in your fight of faith as you live for Christ and His kingdom. So think about that. If you struggle with the fear of man, you're trying to do what? You're trying to gain and keep the world's approval. Well, you already have the king's approval. We try so hard to be loved by the world, but you are already beloved of God. Why fear man when Christ has already claimed you for himself and his kingdom? Why fear man, for example, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 24. Why fear man... When, 1 Peter 1, 24, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Why do your dance to keep the world's approval, to maintain your social circles, to be accepted by the world when the world is like a flower of glass, grass. Look what God has already made you, friend. Look at 2.9. It says, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood at the service of God, claim to be intermediaries between God and man for his good grace, having the ministry of reconciliation. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when we are called to rejoice in suffering, we're called really to lift up the banner of the king, to see the king again, who has already won victory over sin, death, and Satan. He has made us his beloved, and he, in fact, will preserve us until the end. These are reasons to rejoice. Our sufferings are opportunities to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Point number two, they're also opportunities to boast in the name of Christ. Boast in the name of Christ. Point number two, knowing that suffering is expected, he says there in 15 and 16, right, knowing that you, we're going to suffer, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, in that name Christian. We see here, like, uh, you can think of it as a, a contrast of names. Immoral, Christian. You see here, he, he gives these various lists of things that are so clearly wrong he talks about suffering as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, right? That's one group. That's some names, right? If you're going to be, if you're going to be doing those things, the public will name you or you'll be found guilty of doing certain things. But then he says, if you suffer as a Christian, the different name, the name as you bear the name of the king, don't ever be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Peter basically says, may we as Christians never suffer for those things, right? The things that ought to bring shame, being publicly condemned. But if people condemn you, if society condemns you or mocks you for being a Christian, never be ashamed of that name, but glorify God in that very name. I've certainly been, been condemned for being one of those Christians. Maybe you have too. Maybe you've been derided for, for being a Christ follower. Friend, Christian is no name that you need to be ashamed of. The name of God, Jesus Christ, and Christian, which means follower of Christ, indicates honor and glory. And we bear, we wear that jersey out into the world, bearing the name Christ as a Christian. This is our King's name, your Savior's name. Why would we ever need to be ashamed of the name of him who made us his beloved and gave himself for us to the death so that we might have eternal life in him and his resurrection? Christian, where else can you find such love, such strength, such faithfulness, such mercy and compassion, such justice and righteousness apart from Christ and his cross? Look at your Christian right next to you. Maybe your roommate, maybe your parents, maybe your spouse. We, if we know ourselves well enough, we fail each other and we are still Christians. You cannot find any greater faithful love than in Christ and his cross going to die on account of his people. If you are a Christian, you realize that he left his throne of glory for you. A sinner, you a sinner, to rescue you even though you didn't want it even though you didn't think you needed it. This is all part of the gospel. That's why going to the gospel helps us see just how much God loves people, right? Though God created us for a relationship with him, we rejected and sinned against him, all of us. 
Though we do not live the life that God requires of us, he nevertheless initiated a rescue plan and sent his eternal son to take on flesh and live the perfect life that we could not so that God would see us as righteous. Jesus Christ lived a righteous life so that all who repent of their sins and believe on him would be credited his righteousness. So even though God sees us as sinners, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ for those who believe on him. And this Jesus, he subjected himself to unjust sufferings for you, for the wrath that you deserved. Though we should have tasted death, he tasted death for you. Three days later, being sovereign over all, the sovereign one that he is, he got up from the dead so that those who turn from their sins and li would live a new life in him. Eternal life now and known to the full one day. As Peter says, he's rescued us out of darkness and brought us into, the, into his kingdom where we now have a living hope through our living Savior. And again, for those who repent of their sins and believe on him, even you who are visiting today, you don't know Jesus, this, he holds out these truths and these promises for you that those who repent of their sin and believe on him would know forgiveness of sin, adoption into his family, and right standing before him. So he calls us all to walk after him, to walk in his righteousness, walk in his love. This is why we as a church glory in Christ Jesus. It's because of the gospel. So what need is there to be ashamed of our Savior? The good child is the illustration. The good child, right, who knows the sacrifice of their parent. If you are a single parent, single dad, single mom, or you came from that kind of household, if you hear someone insult your mother, your father, who has labored so hard, one job, two job, sleepless nights for you, to bring blessing to you, and someone insults your parent, you're going to stand up, right? You're going to be very quick to defend your parent, to identify with your parent, and even suffer for your parent when you know your parents' sacrifice for you. Whether you come from that type of house or any house where you have a parent, parents, who are sacrificing themselves for you. So when it comes to Jesus Christ, I wonder if you kind of shrink back, it might, you know, indicate maybe we don't know the love of Christ all that much. Maybe we need to enter into the love of Christ all the more, which is super exciting, so that we would be bold, so that we would never shrink back, so that we would always identify, always defend where necessary, and always be ready to suffer even because we know him so intimately just how much he has loved us, making us his beloved. And so we therefore boast in the name of Christ. That's our only logical conclusion when we know the love of Jesus Christ. Think, we, can apply, we, we, see this, we see this manifested in so many different ways. Lakers fans, whatever fans, sports fans, whatever thing that you love, if someone's gonna insult that thing, you're quick to stand. So the question is, are we quick to stand for Jesus? One of the greatest ways that we can be bold to stand for Jesus and boast in him is obviously to know him all the more, to know his great love for us. Do you know the loving sacrifice of your Savior? And how are you doing at glorifying him and boasting in him all the more? even perhaps in the face of the fear of man.
Every single Sunday on the Lord's Day, when we gather, we seek to enter more deeply into the love of Christ and then to glory in Him. That's why we talk so much about Jesus and His work on the cross. It is to remind ourselves of what Christ has done and is doing for us, and then to glorify the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's why we sing the songs that we do. For example, Be Thou My Vision again. We're praying that Christ would be our vision, so bold, so clear, so that the riches of the inheritance that is found in Jesus would overshadow and so push out our love for the world and all earthly things. This is why we seek to do what we do every single Sunday. You recognize that in this order of service where we begin with, let's say, the call to worship, we start off hearing God's call, right? Worship only happens. This gathering of true Christians only happens if the grace of God goes before, right? We know that we are not saved apart from the grace of God, so the grace of God must come before we worship Him. So every single Sunday, we gather together. We start off with a call to worship. God's call goes forward. His eternal word goes forward. His word that gives birth goes forward and calls his people to sing him praises, which is why we start off the word with his powerful word. Then we sing his praises. We ascribe him the glory that is due his name. Worship, according to the Bible, is a response to the living God and his word. We pray to God. We come before God, whether it be Darren praying a praise, prayer of praise, or Terry this morning giving us the prayer of intercession, or Rocky or myself after preaching, we pray, sort of praying that God would take this word and, and apply it to our hearts. We plead that the Spirit would do His work in our lives so that we would be a display of His glory. And then, of course, we give a lengthy time, sometimes lengthier than others when I'm preaching, we give a lengthy time to preaching His Word, as that is how Christ intends that His people be fed. His chosen instrument to bring new life and sustain. That's why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we preach expositionally, taking the main point of the passage and making that, by God's grace, the main point of the sermon. We do this every single Sunday. We, we are filled up. It's kind of like the heartbeat where the heart beats on Sunday and then it's spread throughout where we go and are dispersed into our respective workplaces, respective families, locations, societies, the places in which we shop, displaying His glory, loving others, speaking of His gospel. And we want to be super clear about this because this is what helps us endure, right? Entering more into the love of God in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. We want to be clear about Christ and His sacrifice on the cross every single week. God forbid a visitor would leave here asking, who do they worship? What is that gospel that they preach? How, it is, how is it that I can be saved? We want to make these thing, things clear every single Sunday. So again, if you're visiting with us, maybe you've been coming for a little while. This is why we're always talking about this Jesus guy, because that's how awesome he is. That's how loving he is. And we need to be reminded of it every single week. Ourselves, we need to be reminded of it. And God calls you too to enter into his love as well, to know such forgiveness, knowledge of your maker, peace, joy in your hearts, the love of God poured out into your hearts. You too, friends, can know that if you turn from your sins and believe on him. 
This is why we hold out the gospel week in and week out. So to recap here, sufferings for Christ are opportunities to, number one, rejoice in the glory of Christ. Number two, boast in Christ. And then number three, to entrust ourselves to Christ. Entrust ourselves to Christ. Look how he starts off there. First he talks about judgment, but he moves eventually to entrusting ourselves to Jesus. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the godly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In some ways there, verse 19 can be a summary of all of 1 Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will living our lives in this fallen world where there is indeed suffering, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, not just bland morality, but walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Who, who is it that we can entrust ourselves to there in verse 19? It is our faithful, sovereign creator. Praise God he is who he says he is because if he is not who he says he is, then what in the world are we doing here? We just cut straight, cut straight to the truth here. If God is not who he says he is according to his word, then what are we doing here? If God is not the sovereign creator, not the sovereign one, then wouldn't we have every reason to question his ability and power and promises? And if we have every reason to question his ability and his power and his promises, what rest would there be at the end of the day? Like, could we truly rest in God who is unable, a God who is at the end of the day impotent, and a God who may not fulfill his promises? <laughs> Praise God, he is able. He is powerful, and he is faithful, according to the passage. Clearly here, we can entrust ourselves to him. The word there, entrust, is the same word that Jesus said on the cross, into your hands, I commit, I commit my spirit. And he's the one who suffered the worst, unimaginable, un injustice at the hands of men. And yet he says, for the sake of the salvation of those he died for, on the cross as he bore the hostilities of man, he says, into your hands I entrust or commit my spirit. Praise God we can trust in that Christ as we endure unjust sufferings ourselves. Praise God he is faithful what allows us really to entrust ourselves to him is his sovereignty, power, and his faithfulness to his promises. Never fails. From the letter in general, we've already talked about how because your almighty God is faithful, there is no need to doubt when the darkness seems to close in over us. We never need to doubt whether or not we actually have a living hope whether we have a future inheritance in Christ, whether or not God will preserve us for that inheritance by His grace. Those are all promises from chapter 1. Just as He spoke, so He is faithful to fulfill it. Because your almighty God is faithful, you don't need to be crushed when the world rejects you. 
because through Christ he has already brought us to God. Chapter 3, 18. Just as he has spoken, so he is faithful to fulfill. And because God is faithful, we can in fact entrust ourselves, commit ourselves to him who will in fact preserve us to the end. And because your almighty God is faithful, even in the worst of suffering, we know that God is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. So when God enlists us into the battle, we know, we know with absolute certainty him who leads us is the faithful and sovereign creator who calls us to follow him and even suffer for his name. For our verses here in 17 to 18, Peter directs our hearts to God's faithfulness in judgment more specifically, faithfulness in judgment. We covered those, we covered briefly how he's faithful in so many different ways, but here he speaks about judgment. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, friends, when he says judgment begins at the house of God, do not think this is judgment in condemnation for sin. Don't think this is condemnation for sin, and so therefore we ought to be afraid. The Bible says that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, though we sin, Romans 8.1. In addition to that, verse 18 says that the righteous are those who are saved. It does say scarcely saved, but friends, that word scarcely can also mean and be translated through difficulty. He's just emphasizing that this path is in fact narrow, and we as Christians go through difficulty. Living in this fallen world, everybody goes through difficulty. In these verses, Peter says that the time for God's purification has come. He's talking about judgment as in purification. Here, Peter quotes from the Old Testament various places, but probably most likely Malachi 3 is the context for in relation to the judgment beginning at the household of God. Peter, Peter speaks of how God is like the refiner's fire. In Malachi 3, who will one day draw near to his people in the temple to refine them, to purify them, making their worship acceptable. It's not condemnation. It is purification. And after purifying his people, God then would move to judge those who do not fear him, or in Peter's language, do not obey the gospel of God. And he says that the time is now. As God has drawn near to his spiritual people in the church, the household of God, to purify their faith. But God's faithfulness is not only seen in purifying his people, it is also seen in the assurance that he will judge. The assurance that he will judge. And here, I think we can all recognize and take comfort in the fact that, yeah, if someone is to be just, like if a judge is to be just, then of course we're going to expect there to be justice at the end. How many of us, if some, evil, if some wrongdoing were done to us, we then would file the suit, for example, we then go to, go to court, and then the judge is like, nah, that's okay. This person committed murder against one of us, some uh, uh, egregious offense, and the judge says, whatever. We'll just give him a slap on the wrist, $50 fine. How many of us would not scream, non-Christian included, would not scream that there is great injustice? Everybody wants justice. Everybody understands this. Here, it talks about how God, the king of the universe, will in fact be just. And one day judge evildoers. Verse 18, and if the righteous is saved through difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's argument from the lesser to the greater. Their judgment is even greater. Of course, this is not to stir up pride as if we are 
uh, supposed to stand in judgment over others. No, it's supposed to be an encouragement that God will one day, He assures us, bring justice to the world. Christian, though suffering for the faith is hard, I pray that you are able to see God's purification as evidence of God's good and loving faithfulness to you. I wonder if you see that now. Suffering for the faith, that's what he's talking about here specifically, but I think we can broaden it. Do you see God's purifying fire as God loving you? If you don't, you know that suffering will forever be something you curse. God will be someone you curse as he will forever be in doubt. You will never find comfort in a God like that. Friends, when it says that God is faithful, we have to remember that God is faithful and good also in everything he does. Faithful and good in everything that that he does. That means all the work he does in your life somehow is working for your good. Somehow. Remember, friends, that the faith he implanted in your hearts by the word of God, he now cultivates in your life, even through, especially through, suffering. In doing so, he grows our affections for him. He cultivates our longings and our love for him. As a personal example, as we finish off here in the last five minutes, this is certainly something that I've been learning, especially since um, in terms of general suffering, my arthritis and the excruciating pain that comes with it. It's not suffering for the faith, but it's certainly suffering because we live in a fallen world. And this pain is indescribable. I've suffered a lot of injuries. Dislocated my shoulder. It was out for hours. I've broken my ankle. I've had two shoulder surgeries and all the repair that comes with it. I've fallen numerous times, skateboarding, building, falling off the ramp, falling off my bike, doing all sorts of crazy stuff like most boys do. But the pain from gout is like nothing I have ever experienced. I would rather have 10 surgeries than go through a, a gout attack again. Most people have an arthritis attack, a gout attack, and the pain might resolve in three days, maybe a week. Mine lasts a month at a time. Women who have gout say that the pain from a gout attack is worse than giving birth. But, you know, typically, if you're going to have a baby, in a lot of circumstances, you're left, hopefully, with a healthy baby. You've got the suffering that then leads to this joy. But with a gout attack, not only is it unplanned, unscheduled, and last for me a month at a time, you're left with the thought of it is coming again. I can say that, friends, I have never been so refined in my life. My faith is being purged and has been purged and refined so that I would not trust in the things of the world that are going to fail me anyways but it's refined so that I would trust in him who never fails me. That's what I mentioned before in this series. Turn over to Psalm 62. Turn over to Psalm 62, verses 1 to 2. This is what it says, Psalm 62, verses 1 to 2.
David says there, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. But in my physical pain, I have to admit that in the worst of the worst, though David waited for God alone to deliver him, my deliverance, I thought, came from freedom from pain. Freedom to live how I want to live and to do what I want to do, which we could just summarize as power. The ability to do what I want to do when I want to do it. That's how John Piper defined power. When David's rock and refuge was God, for me it was tempting to think that my foundation of refuge is a healthy body, free from physical pain, free from illness. What is it that I wanted most in the moment? Freedom from pain. A life with no limitations. But you know what the most important thing was for me to want or what God wanted of me most, first and foremost, he wanted me to know more deeply that Christ is my everything. And that no matter what circumstance I'm in, it's to see that he is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation and that his grace is sufficient for me all the way until I return to dust. Through the pain, I can tell you with 100% certainty and with joy and gladness now, looking back then, even while I hope to never experience that again, though I probably will, as I look back on my mind-altering, soul-crushing pain, I can acknowledge with joy and gladness that God helped me let go a little bit more of the things that are guaranteed to fail me, my health, my body, this temporary existence, in order that I would love him who never fails me. And for that, I love him all the more. He's so faithful to cultivate that which he planted in me, right? Faith, the faith that he gave you, the faith that he's cultivating now is evidence of his faithfulness because you, friend, are his beloved in Jesus Christ. And so he's readying you for that day when you meet Christ in all of his beauty. In this purification, in this refinement, our vision of God becomes clearer and we are more free to rest in his sovereign ability and to entrust ourselves to him and his goodwill. Suffering on account of his name is vision clarifying for us. When we suffer for the name of Christ, God helps us see what we really think of the name of Christ. Whether or not Jesus is praiseworthy in your life, boastworthy in your life, whether or not you really think he will take care of you, whether or not you will really rely on him as opposed to the world. Friends, and do you see that God is using even suffering for his name, being faithfully good to bring us a clearer vision of who he is so that you, friend, would find all comfort in him who alone provides lasting comfort. Psalm 62, 2 says, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. As we wrap up for real this time, verse 19 of our passage says, Therefore, since God is faithful to purify and to faithfully judge the evildoer, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, in relation to what Terry prayed about, praise God that we could go out into the world time and time and time again with this ministry of reconciliation, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And even if the world casts their greatest hostilities against us, even the ways in which we suffer reminds the world that we go to the dust for Jesus. May we entrust ourselves to Christ as we seek to follow in his footsteps in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that it is hard. We confess that at times we despair and lose hope. We confess, Lord, that many times we would rather obey man rather than obey God. And even in our own lives, Lord, we recognize that this is the case. But we thank you, God, that in you there is forgiveness, just as Peter shows us. We thank you, God, that even though at times we may fear you and not name you or live as if we don't know the God-man or say even that we do not know the God-man, oh, Lord, we thank you that as we repent, we can trust in your promise that you are just and righteous to forgive us our sins and that as far as the east is from the west, so far do you separate us from your sin. We thank you, God, that you, Jesus Christ, are the one who overcame the world. And Lord, even though we are sinful, Lord, we know that we will too if we are in Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to fill us with your spirit so that we might walk as you walked. That in our footsteps here in this world, that we would walk in your footsteps that we would indeed pick up our cross and follow you, trusting in you. Lord, these truths, your promises, and your character, we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would impress them upon our hearts and our eyes so that we would know you as faithful. And if we are ever in doubt, may we go back to the cross of Christ and see that all of the promises you have given us in the Old Testament have you how you have spoken about Christ in the law and the prophets and in the writings and the Psalms and the Proverbs. All of your word reminds us that you are faithful. So Lord, we pray for the church. We pray for us who might be going through extreme difficulty, whether it be for health or for the faith. God, we ask that you would lift our spirits again that you would remind us in an extraordinary way by the Spirit that you are with us. Comfort us, we pray, as we know that you are the God of all comfort. And we ask that even though it is hard, we pray, Lord, that we would be the church that loves just as you love, and may we walk as you walked, holy as you are holy, all the way until the end. In your name we pray these things. Amen.